commutative super singular isogeny to V Hellman, I, I think is a is a misnomer in a sense. There's more to the graph um, in the case of Seaside than there is an SIDH. In a world where 512 bit primes are sufficient to instantiate Seaside securely, the key size is even smaller than such. Disclaimer. What you're about to hear represents the thoughts and opinions of the participants at the moment of recording. We reserve the right to change our minds. Hey, this is Luis. Welcome to Welcome Podcast. This is the first episode of the Cryptic Conversation series where I'll be having my guests talking about topics relevant to cryptography and cybersecurity. The first guest of this series is Jason Lebrow. Jason did his PhD in the University of Waterloo and is now a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Auckland in New Zealand. In this episode, we talk about CSIDH, Psych, and Section Attack. I hope you enjoy it. So, Jason. How are you? <laughs> I'm doing great, thanks. How, it's, how are it's you? It's good to have you back. Uh, yeah, I'm glad the, to be back. <laughs> you're the first one that comes for the second time. I'm, I'm flattered that you thought of me. That's yeah, of very course. nice. <laughs> <laughs> now we want to do some more crypto-specific episodes, so right. you're the first person that came to mind. <laughs> <laughs> so last time you talked, or you told me that you're working on constant time implementations and uh, how to achieve them for CSIDH. That's right, uh, yeah. So why don't you walk us through, through the process? Like first, what is a side channel attack and what, what are the countermeasures for that? Yeah, sure. I can I can try to, uh, to say something about that. I mean, so at, at a high level, a side channel attack is when you use uh, information that's sort of physical, I suppose, is the way you might put it, to try and learn hidden information about a, a cryptographic protocol. So for instance, you know, I could see how long an algorithm runs for and try and use that to determine uh, what the key was, perhaps. Or I can see at which points in the algorithm the computer is pulling a lot of power, and maybe that will tell me something about the, the values of certain bits of the key or something like that. So you're, you're using physical information um, to cryptanalyze a protocol, to determine something that ideally you would want someone not to know. And so the uh, yeah. sort of the, the fundamental example of this is, is well, well, as I said, you can, you can think about timing. So... I'm sure you can imagine an algorithm which, you know, on certain inputs runs very quickly, but on other inputs runs very slowly. I mean, if you right. if you want to multiply two numbers, but their their length is is allowed to vary, then like multiplying two one digit numbers is way 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 faster than multiplying two hundred digit numbers. Um, right. So you could uh, you could use this information to find. Um, you could use timing information to try and make some kind of educated guess about how long those numbers would be. Obviously, cryptographically, that's not the kind of problem you're worried about, but that's. Um, at least an intuitive example of where you could use this kind of information to learn something about a, a secret piece of information. Right. So, and now the idea is to create algorithms that uh, don't have that that detail, don't don't have that aspect to them. Yeah. There's no there's no vul vulnerability coming from from how fast they run, uh, uh -huh. or or maybe other things. I mean, there are plenty of algorithms that try to defeat more than or that try to prevent other kinds of uh, side channels. But what I'm mostly interested in is uh, timing attacks, um, or at least that's what I was what I have been interested in, in the past. Um, uh -huh. And so what you want is a, an algorithm whose runtime does not depend on any private information. And so you call that um, you call that kind of algorithm to be constant time. Um, and it's sort of I mean, 
it's a misnomer in a certain sense because a constant time algorithm does not run in time that is completely constant. Like if you run it over and over, even on the same key or on different keys, it can have different runtimes. But what's important is that the runtime is just independent of the secret material, the, uh, which in what I care about, that's a, the secret key. What specific algorithm are you trying to uh, make constant time? So my work has been on, at least the work of my, my PhD thesis was, uh, I was looking right. at CSIDH. Uh, it's a, a key establishment protocol. Um, I don't know how familiar everyone is. I can explain a little bit about uh, about what it is. That would be great, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it stands for, in principle, is commutative SIDH. And then what SIDH uh -huh. stands for is uh, supersingular isogeny Diffie-Hellman. And, you know, so Diffie-Hellman, if you go back, it's sort of the first public key protocol. And it's a, it's a key establishment protocol, very simple. And then supersingular isogeny Diffie-Hellman is, is trying to uh, instantiate something that resembles Diffie-Hellman, but using isogenies of supersingular elliptic curves. And I'm sure that's, uh, for me to explain that, now would be a little bit uh, probably too much for somebody listening but suffice it to say right. you know a super singular elliptic curve is a kind of, of mathematical object and isogenies are certain maps that go from super singular elliptic curves to other super singular elliptic curves mm -hmm. um, so you, you use these maps somehow um, in a way that is sort of analogous to how exponentiation is used in uh, in Diffie-Hellman um, so this protocol exists um, called super singular isogeny Diffie-Hellman and somehow its security relies on the fact that the, the anamorphism ring of a supersingular elliptic curve is, is not commutative. Um, but then uh, this sort of variant protocol, I mean, it, commutative supersingular isogeny Diffie-Hellman, I, I think is a, is a misnomer in a sense because it, the name relates too strongly to supersingular isogeny Diffie-Hellman, when in reality, I don't think the protocols are conceptually that similar. But the idea is mm -hmm. uh, you, you build this commutative group that somehow acts on supersingular elliptic curves, uh, and then you use this to instantiate something that, again, looks a lot like Diffie-Hellman. In fact, looks a lot more like Diffie-Hellman than... Uh, than SIDH does. Um, so uh -huh. this is the protocol that I'm concerned about. It's a key establishment protocol uh, based on supersingular elliptic curves. So I remember we work in CSIDH yeah. for like an attack, and it does look a lot more like Diffie-Hellman when you write out the equations. Do you think we can try to explain why? Well, I mean, I think the I've never I've never tried to formalize it, but I assume that the you know, exponentiation in a group is a uh, is just an action of the integers on the group uh, in mm -hmm. the same way that the action of the class group on the collection of elliptic curves is a uh, is a group action. I think you can write Diffie-Hellman as an instantiation of um, what are those called? Hard homogeneous spaces. Yeah, yeah. I believe Diffie-Hellman is just an instantiation of that that happens to not be quantum safe. Uh, and Seaside is also uh, an instantiation of a hard homogeneous space. So really, they're they're basically the, they're the same thing if you if you abstract just a little bit. So homogeneous space will be uh, a space where the group action is hard to invert. You need group action to be hard to invert, and you need what's been referred to in the literature as the parallelization problem to be to be difficult. And so that's if I give you the action of A on E and the action of B on E, it needs to be difficult to find the action of A times B on E. Uh, uh -huh. Otherwise, the whole the whole protocol yeah. is going to be insecure. Similar to the Diffie-Hellman problem, right? Exactly, exactly. It really is just uh, translating the Diffie-Hellman problem into a more abstract uh, abstract setting. Yeah. So in what part of the CSIDH is subject to timing attacks? So really, it's uh, sort of the algorithm as a whole. Um, the idea is that your key in Seaside is a vector of um, a vector of integers. And these integers tell you how many times you're going to apply isogenies of a certain degree. So if, you know, if your key is one, two, three, then what that's going to tell you is, okay, I'm going to apply one isogeny of degree L1, two isogenies of degree L2, 
and three isogenies of degree L3, where L1 and L2 and L3, they're, they're certain primes. Um, uh-huh. And so the, the way these keys are chosen is you, well, it depends actually on, on who you ask. In the, in the original work, uh, the key entries were all chosen to between, be between minus five and five. Um, then later works suggested between zero and 10. Uh, and then later works suggest that you choose them from different intervals depending on uh, the degrees of the isogenies themselves. So for instance, because three isogenies are generally much, much, much faster than like 103 isogenies, um, you want to do more three isogenies than you want to do isogenies of degree 103. Um, but anyway, you, you, you pick this vector of, of integers and you use that to determine how many isogenies of each degree you're going to compute. Now, if you imagine just by happenstance, you picked your key and all the entries were zero, then you don't need to do any isogenies at all. So you can just take your input curve and then not do anything and output it instantly. This is very fast. However, if you picked your key to be like all tens or all fives or something, depends on depending on your context, then you're going to have to do some work to, to evaluate this group action that you need to do and or to evaluate all the isogenies that you, you need to evaluate. Uh, so someone can look at this and say, okay, they output the key, they output their thing instantly, their key is probably a bunch of very small integers, or they took a really long time to output their key, so their key is probably a bunch of large integers, or at least contains some large integers. So what the constant time implementation does is, you know, as the as the name suggests, it makes the, the runtime independent of the of the key. Okay, so what what are the modifications that you have to do then? It's actually it's actually quite straightforward. I mean, so the the key is determined by um, what we call uh, at least I don't I actually, I think everybody calls it this at this point the the bound vector, which is a list of uh, a list of integers that tells you uh, how big the keys are the key entries are allowed to be. So you know uh-huh. the bound vector uh, in the literature it used to be you know all tens. So what that means is that every integer you pick is between zero and ten. Anyway, it's not it's not chosen like that anymore. You can do it more efficiently, but it's not important how it's how it's done necessarily. Um, but the idea is, you know, instead of computing just the required isogenies, the ones that are needed to to compute your output, you you're going to compute all your required isogenies and then enough extra isogenies to get you all the way up to exactly b right. uh, b i isogenies of, of degree l i for each i. So uh-huh. you're so what this means is that regardless of what your key is, you're going to compute some number of real isogenies based on your key, and then some number of dummy isogenies also based on your key, and then but the total number of isogenies in the end does not depend on your key. Yeah, I think last time you talked also about the amount of extra work that you're doing with the dummy isogenies. Yeah, yeah. In practice, it ends up being you're you're roughly doubling your your work. I mean, it's it's sort of hard because the original paper. From the the people who proposed the protocol in the first place, their implementation was not um, was not constant time, and then the first constant time implementation that I'm aware of um, ended up having to modify some things in order to get it to be constant time. So they were no longer using this um, the same key space, for instance. So it, it's hard to compare. But I, I would say doubling, like uh, estimating that you're doubling your work, is is pretty reasonable. Uh-huh. Do Do you know of any like practical implementation of an attack and of a side channel attack that would be probably fatal for CSIDH? Because you had this, what's it called, the chip whisperer? Right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I, I think there was a paper fairly recently that talked about um, side channel analysis of seaside. So, I mean, I didn't read it uh, super closely because I'm not really working on that anymore. But my impression was that they they know that you can break seaside non a not constant time implementation using a straightforward attack just based on you know how long the the algorithm takes basically. Uh-huh. Yeah, I remember that was also trying to do some power analysis. Ah, uh, sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. 
So there's there's something tricky going on in, in Seaside, which I'm sure goes on in other protocols, but I just happen to, you know, I know it for Seaside is that, you know, there's these basic operations, um, these these isogenies, and but they're of different degrees. So like somehow you need to learn a bunch of pieces of independent information. And so mm-hmm. I, I think power analysis comes into play when you're trying to identify which part of the, the computation you're looking at, like which degree isogeny you're looking at. Um, I'm not 100% sure of the details, but I, I think it's useful in that context, at least. Yeah. Well, now a, a little bit of a tangent. <laughs> right now we talk a little bit about Seaside. Mm-hmm. So is any of this work that you're doing any applicable to Psyche? Uh, no, I well, the work that I've been doing, it really is, is very specific to Seaside. And in fact, what my work was not even, my work wasn't really even on, um, well, okay, it's not entirely true. I did a little bit of work talking about uh, side channel attacks on Seaside, but my primary concern, or, or fault attacks actually on Seaside, which is a little bit of a, a different thing. But my work um, about constant time implementations was mostly about optimizing them and making them run faster. And mm-hmm. um, some of that applies to SIDH in a straightforward way, but actually the parts that apply to SIDH have already been applied to SIDH in the past. So uh, okay. <laughs> yeah, it's like we sort yeah. of, we saw that idea and we're like, oh, you know, with, with a little bit of work, you can extend that to Seaside, to seaside. from SIDH. Yeah. And it actually even appears, well, for, for those in the know, I'm talking about uh, strategies, what, what they're, just, they're just called strategies. And what you use strategies for is to find the, the necessary kernel points that are used to, uh, they're used to generate the kernels of the isogenies you need in SIDH. Uh, so right. these strategies appear in, um, certainly in the journal version of the, the original SIDH paper and probably in the, in the conference version as well. Um, but yeah, you can extend that to, to Seaside with just a little bit of work. Um, uh-huh. So that's one of yeah. the, the things I was looking at. The strategies are these um, paths coming down, right? Yeah. In the original work, um, this is something I talked to David about, actually. And uh, I, don't, I don't know what, whether we came to a consensus or not. But I actually, I think that the, uh, the drawings from that original work, while they're very uh, standard and they're, 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 they're typical in computer science to draw your binary yes. trees uh-huh. sort of going down like... Uh, well, you can't see, <laughs> the listeners can't see me, but I'm sure they know what this looks like. Um, but it, in doing this, you sort of destroy the geometry uh, of, of what's going on. And so in later, well, at least in my work, we've taken to drawing them uh, as in Z2. So all the points are, are integer and uh, they, they start at zero, zero and go up and to the right. Oh, and then actually, okay. if you look in other works in Seaside from people doing similar things, they are also in Z2, but they go uh, down and to the right for some reason. Uh-huh. So there's, there's debate over which direction the uh, the tree should face. Um, but well, I think but, people um, generally agree that they should be in an orthogonal grid now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it probably makes more sense. Can, can you talk a little bit more about what strategies are? Sure, sure. Oh, yeah. So um, the idea is that um, a strategy, like I said, it's a it's a, sub, a subgraph of a, of a graph in, in Z2. So each point on my graph is, um, well, each vertex of the graph, I should say, is, is a pair of integers. And it actually corresponds to a point on an elliptic curve. And uh, the idea is that if you if you think of yourself in, in my framework, which is our graphs start at 0, 0 and go up and to the right, then every point, uh, every vertex in a given row of vertices uh, corresponds to a different point on the same elliptic curve, but then different rows correspond to different elliptic curves. And uh-huh. the idea is you use the horizontal edges of the graph correspond to multiplication by a certain prime. And that's, that's why you live in the same elliptic curve every time you, uh, you, you take a horizontal edge. So you start with a point at 0, 0, and you know, taking an edge to the right, that's multiplying by, say, the first prime, multiplying by 3, perhaps. And you can look at these graphs, and then uh, there's uh, you know, the line uh, x plus y equals, say, n. 
Um, this is the sort of the edge of the, the leaves of the graph. So the points that lie on that line um, in Seaside, what they do is they're used to generate uh, subgroups of an elliptic curve that uh, act as the kernels of isogenies that are used in Seaside. So, you know, you multiply by three and then by five and then by seven and then by 11 and so on. And what's going to happen in the, in the bottom row of the strategy is you're going to multiply out all but one of the primes. And then what you're going to be left with is a point in on an elliptic curve of prime degree uh, or prime order, sorry. And you're going to use that to generate a, an isogeny of that degree. Then uh -huh. going from the bottom, the bottom row of your, of your tree to the next row, um, th those vertical edges correspond to applying the isogeny generated by the kernel generator I just described. Mm -hmm. So the horizontal edges are multiplication, and that's why those points all live on, on one elliptic curve. But the vertical edges are isogenies, and they take you from the, the elliptic curve of the first row to the elliptic curve of the second row. And that's why you said that they should be orthogonal. <laughs> very... Well, well, actually, uh, my, my, my desire for them to be orthogonal is, is to make the um, computational aspects of them a little bit more clear to me, I think. Right. Um, because when I was working on this, my, my goal was to, to find optimal strategies, which techniques for finding optimal strategies in the case of SIDH are already are discussed in the original paper. Um, and those techniques extend in a fairly straightforward fashion to, to, to Seaside without having to worry about uh, this redrawing nonsense. But the, um, the issue really arises when you consider that there's more to the graph um, in the case of Seaside than there is in SIDH. Because in, in SIDH, or psych, all the uh, edges, or sorry, all the, yeah, all the isogenies and all the multiplications are by the same prime. So you're always mm -hmm. multiplying by two, or yeah. like you have two graphs, you're either always multiplying by two or always multiplying by three. And then you're always computing isogenies of degree two, or always computing isogenies of degree three. So all these horizontal edges in, in SIDH, in, in, your, in, your, in your strategy, they all take the same amount of time. It's just whatever the time is to multiply by two on an elliptic curve. And then all the, the vertical edges, they also take the same amount of time. It's whatever time it is to evaluate an isogeny of degree two. In Seaside, that's no longer true, right? Because, you know, in the first, say, column of horizontal edges, I'm multiplying by three. But in the second, I'm multiplying by five. And that takes longer. Um, uh -huh. So not only are you able to choose a strategy, but you're also able to choose a geometry of Z2. Right. And that's uh -huh. where things get a little... Like, that's where the, the, the original drawings with your 120-degree angles... Um, it no longer is really sort of representative of, of what's going on. You really yeah. want to live in Z2 uh, with, with, a certain, with a certain geometry. Yeah, the previous drawings kind of obfuscate the fact that some vertices are really much further than they appear on the drawing. And not only that, but you want the distance to sort of be uh, additive in a sensible way. Like, you, uh -huh. you know, you want, I want the distance from one point to another to be the Manhattan distance well, the, the modified Manhattan distance in the graph. That's that's really it. Like you, I really want this to be a, a true geometry problem, like sort of drawn correctly. <laughs> um, but but it's not only that actually. Another part of it is that when you're when we're optimizing the permutation of the of the primes, like I said, you 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 get to choose the geometry of the graph. You're allowed to switch the primes around, and that'll you know make some edges longer and some edges shorter or whatever. Um, you, you what you need is a sort of numerical encoding of the strategy. That's well, maybe you don't need it, but I, I think it's easier if you <laughs> have a convenient numerical encoding of the strategy. And when you draw your strategies in this sort of orthogonal way, there's a very natural way to, to take a strategy and encode it as a pair of matrices, which you, of course you can also do okay. in, the, 
in the other case, like with in the original drawings, you could also do this encoding, but it's not nearly as obvious how you get from one to the other, I think. So mm -hmm. and it's really quite straightforward. I mean, if you look at your graph, if you look at a strategy, it's it's a you know it's a bunch of horizontal and vertical edges, and so basically you want to separate your edges into two classes. You've got the the horizontal ones and the vertical ones, and then you just sort of go row by row, and you write down a matrix in a very straightforward way. You say, okay, here's the first row. Where are the horizontal edges in this row that are actually present in the strategy? Okay, I'll put a one in those entries of the matrix and a zero in the other entries, and do that row mm -hmm. by row. And you do the same thing for the vertical edges. So you you get these two matrices that encode the the strategy. Oh, and this okay. uh, this is very convenient for, well, we've, we've used it for um, finding optimal permutations of the primes uh, and finding, uh, well, not optimal, but optimized, I guess, or partially optimized uh, key spaces. Um, but there are, I think I think this has more potential than that. Um, but perhaps we can talk about that. Uh, it sounds like it perhaps has more potential because once, I mean, this sounds like a, some sort of adjacency matrix of, mm -hmm. uh, of a graph. It's similar, and, yeah, it's similar. And so whenever you've, you have a representation like that, there's a whole bunch of algorithms that you can you can apply on a, on a matrix like that. But the trick is probably to find them. <laughs> yeah, I think finding the algorithms is going to be difficult. And it's, yeah. I mean, the, the thing about, about strategies is that, you know, if you fix a permutation of the primes, or in psych where you there is no permutation because the primes are all two uh, or three or right. whatever, um, then there's this sort of recursive algorithm for finding uh, an optimal strategy, which is present in the original paper. It's very sensible. And it doesn't require any matrix representation of the strategy. But uh, in Seaside, because you have this, I mean, again, if you fix the permutation of the primes in Seaside, you can also find an optimal strategy. However, uh, there's something using the same recursive sort of local algorithm. But then in Seaside, there, uh, the, with the permutation of the primes, that's a global thing. Right? Like I can move the primes around as much as I want, and there's sort of no local information that, that I can use to try and find like an optimal local permutation and somehow like take a bunch of locally optimal permutations and put them together into one global permutation. So I think one of the uses of these of these matrices is to uh, write down integer programs that will help us to understand better uh, like globally optimal permutations. Ones, mm -hmm. you know, if you if you say, okay, which is which permutation gives me the optimal optimal strategy? Uh, I think that this um, these matrices are sort of important for writing it down in an optimization-friendly framework. Uh -huh. yeah, what yeah. I've been working on doing, or I had been working <laughs> on doing. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have the chance to to finish that work, or is you working on it? Well, I mean, I uh, no. Well, no. The answer is no. I haven't finished it at all. It's uh, okay. I wrote down. I mean, so during my PhD, it's funny. I've got a copy of my thesis here. I can see. I can tell you what I uh, what I did. <laughs> I wrote an appendix about it because I wasn't able to get any nice results. So the idea was that you can write down these nice mathematical programs that somehow encode the optimal pair of a permutation and strategy. So you you can't you really can't do any better. And then you you formulate the problem in a couple of very cute ways that have like a lot of structure. So you get some sort mm -hmm. of um, quadratic programs or, or bilinear programs, which you know. It's not a linear program. I can't solve it exactly in like zero seconds because the simplex method exists. But there are nice techniques for solving, um, for approximating solutions to bilinear programs or quadratic programs. So and I and I applied what I thought would be some very promising techniques, but in the end, uh, I didn't get. Uh, I wasn't able to get any any nice any nice results. Really, what I was looking for, because this is something we don't have, is a nice lower bound on the cost of an optimal strategy and permutation. Mm. And 
I think that it can be done using this kind of technique. You write down a mathematical program that encodes the problem and it says, okay, if I could solve this, then I would have the optimal strategy and permutation. But that's going to be hard to solve because it's, even though it has a nice structure, it's like an integer program or a binary program or something. But if I just want a lower bound, I should be able to just like take a dual and do something nice with the dual program. But uh, it hasn't it hasn't panned out yet, <laughs> we'll say. <laughs> yeah, sometimes ideas like that in some part of your mind kind of make sense when you when you write them down uh, <laughs> it, they look not very fruitful in truth i've spent a, a long time um you know writing down programs and trying to fiddle with them until they you know okay if i if i add some more constraints that i know are, are accurate maybe i'll get some better duels or something and i've i've come close to getting decent lower bounds really and uh -huh. so I, i'm quite happy with the, with the progress in a certain sense but Nothing, nothing quite rigorous enough for me to be uh, to, be, to th consider myself done with the problem. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so uh, that's what I need to do is is work harder on getting uh, better better lower bounds. But I, I think there's you know I'm no I'm no optimization expert. I, I like optimization and I've taken you know I've taken classes and I've I've read a lot, but uh, I'm not a, an optimization researcher myself. I think if someone who was really well versed in optimization uh, took a crack at this problem, they could probably uh, make some good progress. Yes, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. But well, now change a little bit the topic and going a little bit more into the speculation side or <laughs> more personal opinions. Sure. So first, what do you make or what's your opinion about round three? Was uh, it surprising for you? The uh, yeah, round three of the of the NIST competition. Of the NIST competition, uh, I was I was surprised, but not terribly so to see to see Psych quote unquote alternate, which I mean sort of doesn't mean anything, right? Like uh, this this alternate status, it's. Uh, I mean, I don't know if anything means anything at this well, point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, in my opinion, that was kind of the most surprising part is that I wasn't expecting there to be a new category of alternate candidates. I thought it was just going to be like, you know, the, the finalists or something like that. I, I seem to recall them saying at an earlier meeting that this was a possibility, uh, especially okay. because they've been saying for a long time that this this isn't a competition so we don't want to throw out any, like, we're not going to have winners at the end. And I was like, oh, okay, you're already being so nebulous that, uh, uh -huh. like, any, anything could happen at the end of the day. But the reason that I was surprised that Psych was an alternate was just because it's the only isogeny-based protocol in the, in the competition, right? So yeah. I thought, you know, it, it, just for the sake of, of, you know, covering all your bases and being as absolutely sure as possible that going forward, we're going to, to have something that really is quantum safe, that they would just say, okay, we want to include one primitive of each, each type that is not known to be broken. <laughs> so uh -huh. I thought somehow that's probably the reason why they put in alternate because it's like uh, they don't want to throw the idea away. That's true. That's it's, true. it's really quite promising, right? It's one of the possibly more promising in terms of improvement and deployment because it's one of these obvious uh, advantages that it uses a root infrastructure that has been developed for elliptic curves over the years. Yes. And not only that, it has it has such small key sizes. I mean, it's slow, right? Everyone knows Slyke is slow, but it has really small key sizes, which, you know, maybe on its face that doesn't seem as useful as being fast. But really, there are there are applications where small key size um, really matters. And not only that, but like there's sort of a nonlinear problem when your when your key size grows because of the way that you know information is transmitted over the internet. Like if if my key fits in you know x many packets. Maybe if I add one bit to my key, which doesn't make it that much longer, maybe now it takes X plus one packets. And like uh -huh. this is yeah. there's sort of a, a discrete issue here. Um, yeah. And, you know, 
So so having very small keys, um, it, this can be useful. Yeah, it is an advantage in certain applications. Like yeah. probably it's not, uh, as we thought at the beginning, with, with the variety of candidates, we don't see an obvious uh, best option. Mm-hmm. But what we see is that there's uh, for certain applications, there's obviously ones that are better. Uh, yes. And I think one of the, that comes to explain another part of the reason why they decided to still keep it is that there is a, a huge room for improvement in terms of uh, we know that it's slow, but we know that it can only get faster. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I certainly so hope it doesn't far. get slower. <laughs> yeah, you hope that it doesn't get slower. And especially because of, uh, I think, that the recent developments in terms of the, the new current understanding of the difficulty of the problem. Yes. The parameters are probably not going to grow. This is the model on which we assess the difficulty of the problem is actually a very overkilling model. Uh, yes. Well, what I was going to say is that, you know, you, you say it can't get it can't get slower and there are protocols that are getting slower, uh, <laughs> Seaside being one of them. But uh, you're right that Psyche has been been analyzed uh, for a lot longer than than Seaside just because it's existed for longer. And yeah, yeah there, there are recent works that suggest that. Uh, well, I think the parameter sets have changed uh, in response to the work that I'm thinking of in particular. But there have been works that say, you know, we're being way too hard on Psyche. Like, what are you talking about? Fourth root of P algorithm or sixth root or sorry. Yeah, there's no there's no sixth root of P quantum algorithm that actually does this like you, you you need a fourth root of p algorithm so you can decrease your parameter sizes or whatever and i think yeah, yeah. you're right they're never go- the parameter sizes are not going to get bigger but the algorithms will probably get faster yeah and also i mean places where it runs computers are going to get faster so yes yes these things you know are probably just a little bit inconvenient at the moment but in the long term uh especially for long-term security i, I think it is a great option yes 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 yeah i think that's reasonable and, it's been also kind of uh, a blessing in disguise because now we have more reasons why <laughs> to keep studying psych. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's not that it just finished and that's how we should leave it. We should leave it at that. No, <laughs> right. Keep, keep understanding what's going on. So from the finalist, um, which one is, or do you have any favorite? <laughs> to be honest with you, I don't, uh, ever ever since round three, uh, when, when, um, when Psych was called alternate, I, I sort of stopped following the uh, the conversation because yeah. I, I was working on I've been working on Seaside basically since Seaside came into existence, and uh-huh. uh, Seaside is not part of the competition. So <laughs> so the competition to me is sort of uh, fallen by the wayside for that reason. So I'm not uh, I'm not really not very invested. No, no. Um, yeah. I still I'm still on the email chain, of course, but that's uh, that's a different problem. <laughs> Yeah, it's hard to keep up with the email chain. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, in, in, a, in a number of ways. Yes, I agree. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is it's a little bit complicated. So do you think CSI has also a promising future or do you see them as a, an alternate to the candidates in the NIST competition? Or do you think he has uh, another set of applications on which is obviously better? I, I mean, I think if you had asked me, I don't know, a year ago, I'd have been more optimistic about Seaside's use for its original purpose, which is key establishment, because uh-huh. when Seaside was new, it looked pretty promising um, for, for key establishment. But now with the parameter sizes growing and growing, I mean, I mean, it depends on who you ask, of course. Like, I, I don't want to say that, you know, we definitely need a 2260-bit prime or we definitely need a 5280-bit prime. These are numbers that people are saying, because some people think that we need a 512-bit prime. And if that's the case, then Seaside is very promising. Uh-huh. Um, 
I'm not necessarily convinced that that's the prime size we need, and I'm not going to make a claim as to what size we need. But some people are saying 512, and some people are saying upwards of 5,000. So there's there's a big range of, of prime yeah, size. Yeah, yeah. It's like an order of magnitude. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's quite huge. It's quite huge. And the, the you know, the, I think I think the implementation I saw recently was using a 5280-bit prime, and it, it's, it's using like hundreds of gigacycles for half of a key establishment. And I'm like, okay, there's... You're never going to use this for key establishment. There's no there's no amount of optimization that can save this if that's the size of prime we need. But you know, outside of key establishment, there's lots of niche applications where maybe Seaside is is more useful. So hmm. I I read a paper recently um, where Seaside was used to construct uh, oblivious transfer protocol, hmm. and the really interesting thing, uh, you know, lots of things based on Seaside, all they use is the fact that Seaside is modulo details, uh, an instantiation of a, of a hard homogeneous space. So anytime you've got a protocol that needs a hard homogeneous space, you can approximately, more or less, most of the time, instantiate uh, that protocol using using Seaside. But this oblivious mm-hmm. transfer protocol actually uses things that don't exist in every hard homogeneous space. Uh, it requires the quadratic twist to do some some little arithmetic trick. And um, you know, not every hard homogeneous space has an analog of the, of the, the quadratic twist. And so, it, and they use it to great effect, like it, it dramatically simplifies their protocol or something. So um, in that okay. sense, I'm thinking that, you know, the, the slight additional structure available to Seaside might make it more useful in sort of niche applications. Oh, I see, I see. But in this um, standard form, does it have any advantages with respect to Psych, for example? Or do you see them even as a direct competitor? I mean, it's not competitors, but do you see is there an, any direct comparison between Psych and Seaside? In a world where 512-bit primes are sufficient to instantiate Seaside securely, mm-hmm. uh, which I'm not saying we live in that world, uh, but in that world, the key size is even smaller than Psych. So at the very least, right. it has that going for it. Like if literally, if your only metric for evaluating the the efficacy of a of a protocol is it, or the efficiency sorry of a protocol is its uh, is its key size. Then Seaside has Psych beat, but I don't foresee it being really a competitor for Psych, just because I think we're we're not quite sure about the the size of the prime we need for Seaside to be secure. But it's likely that it will be large enough that even it it won't be beating the key sizes for Psych anyway, uh, and it's definitely slower. So at least we haven't been able to get it faster. So uh, uh-huh. it's probably going to be slower. So I just don't see it having a use over Psych. I mean. It's unfortunate because Seaside is like, I don't know what you want to call it, like sort of a much cleaner looking protocol than Psych because in yeah. Psych you have to send this like auxiliary information, like certain points on the curve. And then these points there, you know, nobody has used them to to break SIDH, but plenty of people have argued that there are contexts in which they could be used to break things that look a lot like Psych um, or could be used to enable fault attacks if validation measures are not taken properly, things like this. You know, Psych is a great protocol that I, I, I'm glad that it's still in round three, even if it is only alternate, but it has this, uh, it's it's this very unclean uh, sort of setup where you need these auxiliary points that I, it's kind of unsatisfying in a way that Seaside isn't. Seaside just looks yeah. like to be common. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think SIDH or Psych, um, in a way, the first time you, you want to study it uh, makes you think, oh, there must be there must be a way to improve this. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There must be a way to not need these auxiliary points. Exactly. Uh, but probably the the more you understand the protocol and the more you try to go deeper into it, it doesn't seem to be any way to get rid of, of the auxiliary points. No, no. I mean, the only thing I could possibly think of that would let you get rid of them is sort of the, 
and I, I don't know, like, this is just me talking off the top of my head, so it's probably not even feasible to do anything remotely like this. But what I'm always reminded of is the braid group cryptography, uh-huh. which I, I'm sure we've talked about before. I don't know if you remember, but I only remember the, the sparest details of it, so hopefully I don't mess up too badly. But the idea is that, you know, the braid group is non-commutative, but uh-huh. when you're when you're picking your keys, you um, the keys are picked from certain subgroups of the braid group, or at least subsets of the braid group that commute. Um, mm-hmm. And somehow this lets you do something that looks like Diffie-Hellman, which requires a commutative group, in a non-commutative group. And sort of the reason that you need, I mean, at a high level, the reason that you need the auxiliary points in SIDH is because the endomorphism ring is non-commutative. But maybe if you were somehow picking your isogenies out of groups that somehow behave nicely with respect to one another, like maybe, like they commute or something, then you could do something that resembles Seaside. But I'm sure that if you could do that, you would somehow run into a quantum algorithm that uh, breaks it in some exponential time. And then we'd have to talk about what the new security level is. Yeah. So, yeah. But anyway, yeah, this can... is just the first thing that jumps to mind is that anytime I see something that's like, oh, it's not commutative, so we can't do something nice. It's like, well, can you restrict to subgroups that, that commute or something? Right. In my thesis, we tried to do some sort of LWUs and non-commutative groups. And mm-hmm. it seemed to me that taking the center or forcing things to commute, it always yields to weaknesses mm-hmm. in a way because you, you're kind of revealing part of the, the structure of the group that i think that's also true even in braid group cryptography like those yeah. those protocols are all broken because something about the i think it's because something about the the commutativity of these two things uh well it's not i don't even think it's that the groups themselves are commutative it's that's a elements from one commute with with elements from the other but anyway yeah there's there's just too much structure yeah there's too much structure so yeah i, I would think that probably this dependency on on the non-commutativity of the endomorphism ring. It has some something to do with the fact that it's hard to break, but it's not that it's proof that it's hard to break, but it's uh, the structure is not that evident. And, sure. And everything that we know in quantum algorithms is like yeah, immediately collapses when we try to apply into a, a non-commutative structure. Uh, yeah, yeah, we really, we sort of don't know what we're doing when we're looking at, uh, I mean, you, you can talk about certain non-commutative groups, like if you have a dihedral group or something, then you can, uh, you can do something and uh, actually there, yeah, there's whole classes of groups where like you sort of build them out of abelian groups, but they're only a little bit non-abelian. And then we can do nice quantum stuff, but uh, for sort of general groups, like, you know, that, that you're just, there's no hope. Yeah. So. But well, uh, that's. That's about it. Well, thank you, uh, Jason, for talking to us about your research. Yeah, yeah, I uh, had a good time. See you, Jason. Yeah, see ya.